Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another edition of Monday Morning Podcast. I am Alex Gore. I'll be your host today. Here, I am here with Tima Bell. He is the co-founder, uh, partner of Relativity Architects in LA. Uh, in its eight years of existence, uh, Tima has helped the firm grow from five people to 50 people, which is huge. Uh, Relativity, Relativity Architects is a rebirthed architecture firm. Originally conceived as a design-build firm and turned into, uh, during the millennium, has evolved into an empirical firm with a wide and diverse knowledge base. Our goal is to produce aesthetically sublime and programmably, programmably efficient architecture. Man, if I could read today, that would be helpful. But that's from your LinkedIn. And some of those words had a lot of letters in them. So that's on you. <laughs> um, I I actually really liked it. That's why I read it. Um, first off, Tima, welcome to Inside the Firm. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be a part of the podcast. Yeah, I really liked it. I mean, today my mouth is just garbage, but our goal is to produce aesthetically sublime and programmically efficient architecture. That is a great, great line. Um, <laughs> so whoever wrote that, if that was you, good job. That was probably me. I'm the more verbose one of the firm. Not to discount my partner's uh, ability to master the language, but I definitely, I come from an art art history background. And, and uh, one of my painting professors early on said, it's not as much of the art that you create, but your ability to talk about it as well that will carry you. So I've always brought that through in my, in my career is the ability to discuss the, the work uh, and, and, and how we approach it. Yeah, I agree with that. We were one of our last competitions in college. Um, a friend, buddy of ours, Nate Hacker, said, "He goes, I feel like I'm going to win the competition. My my business partner and Lance won a lot of the competitions, but he said, if if any of the professors actually read your boards, then you'll win the prof- you'll win the competition." <laughs> <laughs> so he won. So I assume none of the professors read my boards. <laughs> there you go. But to give credit to the art world, I, I think that's very true. And a lot of what I think people are buying when they buy art, besides they might like the aesthetics and stuff like that, but it's the story behind it. And stories have meaning and they're buying the meaning behind it. And sometimes when I'm cynical, I feel like they're actually buying that person's time slash life force behind it. Um, since you come from an art background, would you, I mean, does that seem right? Do I, do I seem crazy or? No, it does. Um, obviously, there, I, just, I just had this conversation with a, a, a critic the other day about what people put in their homes and, and how they approach it. And there's, it's interesting. What we see in museums is often not what ends up in people's homes. Um, uh, it takes a special, mostly, most of the art that ends up in people's homes is probably more uh, decorative, uh, watercolors, landscapes, photographs of landscapes, you know, things like that, because it, it sort of creates an environment. But there are definitely collectors that will um, trend towards the abstract. And when that happens, it is exactly as you say. It is as much about the story of how that piece was created, of the timing of the piece, 
or of the artists themselves that adds to the to the sort of value behind the art itself. I'm a relative collector. I wouldn't call myself avid. I, I seem to have a lot of art. Uh, but the, the way I choose the art is, again, aesthetic and definitely uh, what the, where the artist came from and, and how, they, uh, how they got to that piece. Uh, that definitely weighs in my collection, for sure. How, how do you think that relates to architects? Well, that's a great question. Um, architecture is as much a relationship with your client as it is what you're capable of doing. Um, the ability to, to make buildings uh, of any type, whether residential or commercial, is uh, ultimately is a tool. Um, it's a, it's, and once you master the use of that tool, that's when the ability to kind of uh, push boundaries and start to work within those parameters starts to gain importance. The act of understanding how, you know, drywall fits to wood or concrete is poured or steel is welded, all of those things, once you grasp how all that's done, that's sort of in your tool basket, then the actual creative side comes in and that's where the relationship with the client starts to take effect. And, and that's why I talk a lot about, uh, in, in that uh, line that you read, the sublime portion, uh, we do a lot of commercial work and in commercial work, um, true Formalism is not something that's cherished because it doesn't bring a bottom line. Uh, if you can achieve formalism in the process um, uh, of, of, of the programmatic requirements of architecture, you're managing to do some special work. And that, again, comes back to the relationship with the client. So I think there's a lot of essentially the, uh, it, the creation of, of good architecture comes from having those tools in your bag, but also being able to describe and and uh, and 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 have your client understand what you're bringing to the table aesthetically, environmentally, uh, a lot of issues that they may not consider in the process. Yeah. What do you mean by formalism? Uh, well, look, any any architecture starts itself as a shelter or uh, an environment that has a, a function. Uh, for instance, I often describe our motion picture studios as factories for creating media. Right, so it's a uh, the the idea of achieving programmatic efficiency sort of comes first. Otherwise, the value is not there. Um, when you start getting into formalism, it's how you address uh, sometimes the outward-facing or the inward-facing relationship to the users or uh, perhaps the viewers of that architecture. For instance, um, again, motion picture studios are windowless concrete boxes. But if I just built a bunch of windowless concrete boxes they probably wouldn't have the aesthetic appeal that a client is trying to use to seduce various tenants. So that's where the formalism comes into play. Can we put screening on them? Can we offset them? Can we, you know, put some angular, angular folding capabilities on them? Just various elements of formalism that can bring the project uh, a bit more of a, um, whether it's curb appeal or an interior environment uh, that, that plays in addition to the function to the, the environment feel and, and comfort within the space or again on the exterior. Yeah. Um, normally we start with, uh, you know, going into your past, but we kind of had a side tangent. That's all right. that, that was great. Um, what, why did you decide to go to art school? Well, I was actually, I, I, I kind of started as a, I've always been creative. Uh, my initial uh, step into university, I was actually a music major. I was an opera singer, sort of, uh, uh, of growing as a singer, but the dedication required 
at 17, 18 wasn't something I was prepared to do. So um, I started to take other classes in college and I actually moved into writing and art. And probably the reason I did well in both, but my writing professor at the time said, uh, you should go into art. <laughs> not so, not so in So I moved in that direction and uh, actually um, I did rather well. I was a uh, I had gallery shows uh, nationwide, a little bit internationally. I sold paintings. I was making a living. Um, I didn't think I, I think I wanted to understand uh, three-dimensional space in my paintings and my art that I was creating. And in order to do that, I felt like architecture school was the best uh, path forward in, for graduate school. Uh, I did not realize how architecture would appeal to so many aspects of who I am. Uh, I love the analytical approach. I love the real world detailing that you have to get involved in. There's this beautiful arrangement of scale in architecture from sort of the tiny detail of, of how many screws go in something to support it and what that looks like, pulling out to the macro of how it sits in the urban fabric and relates to the buildings around it contextually. And, and that type of scale difference and the ability to really manifest something physically uh, at the same time, essentially running it like a business and acting as something of a therapist and handling the financial aspect of it. It was just like, wow, this is an incredible broad scope. And I love all aspects. And within the first year of architecture school, uh, my partner and I, who is still my partner, we built a straw bale house. And after the straw bale house, I was hooked. I just, I absolutely love the practice of architecture. So do you- do you think you're unique in this regard or do I have a misconception? And my and the, the misconception might be, or you might say it's not a misconception, is that there's a lot of times that uh, even people that go through architecture school have a strong bias you can see in their portfolio towards art. And one of the things that makes myself nervous as a business owner is how much is the process of architecture going to be misaligned with your art soul? So like what you talked about with the details and, and all that, I, I get that and I understand that. But also if you haven't experienced this or probably have, or maybe you have other people doing it, uh, the drudgery of dealing with city bureaucrats. Um, you know, there, there's this whole other part of architecture that can be related to art, depending on how, on how you see it, but can be pure work, pure nuts and bolts, all that. Um, where do you fall on that on that spectrum, and, and do you think that there is that divide? Um, is is a true observation or not? It it is. Uh, look, architecture is wonderful in that 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 it kind of can encompass almost any type of person. Uh, if you are just purely a creative, there's a place for you in architecture. It probably won't be leading a firm. It probably won't be starting your own firm. If you are just a detail-oriented, technical person, again, place for you in architecture, but you're probably not running or leading your own firm. I happen to be a person that really has a good right brain, left brain balance, and I'm invested in both sides. Um, I am, uh, for lack of a better word, and, and not to sound uh, arrogant, I'm charismatic. So the, the ability to engage with bureaucracies and clients as well as my staff or client or, uh, or, or various entities that support or create parameters for architecture has always been relatively easy. I see all of the elements um, that you just described as, as again, for lack of a better word, the parameters. They sort of create the box in which you can make your, your architecture. 
And there are so many ways to push and bend and pull at those parameters that it can really start to, to achieve a really wonderful um, uh, making these things successful. Um, I do think that to be successful, a successful practitioner, uh, whether it's an individual firm or a multi, uh, a partnership or a larger corporate firm, you do need to have more than just the ability to make uh, forms and shapes and environments. You do need to be able to navigate bureaucracies and negotiate with clients, understand the financial decisions of what you're doing. Uh, a lot of times architects will just create and not understand that there's no budget that's going to support that design. Uh, sometimes there are architects that create and say and force the client into that budget, you know, but it, it definitely, the, the elements of being able to navigate all the other areas surrounding architecture are very important. I just happen to have one of those personalities and one of those brains that enjoys the process as much as the, the finished product or even the product itself. Uh, that probably also comes from my artwork. Um, one of the beauties of, of, of painting and, and making art, which I still do, is I love the process more than the finished product. Um, the finished product's always great. Photographs, recognition, accolades, wonderful. But the process is where the beauty of it is. And my children will often ask me, what's your favorite building you've made? And I have to explain to them, it, it's not really my favorite building, it's what was my favorite process of creating that building? What kind of difficulties did I overcome to get something truly spectacular, whether it's a historical building or a typology that's not really uh, on the mark or just the difficulty of two different zones in a city and how do you marry those zones and get the city to support something like that? I actually love all of it. <laughs> I love the full aspect of, of creating architecture from the difficult portions to the creative portions to getting to the finished product, working with the contractor. You're always learning and that's the beauty of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what was it like learning about going back to, to when you got into architecture school at SciArc and all that? What was that transition like and what kind of really sparked you to, to do that? Uh, it was interesting. I, I, um, I went from art. I worked a bit of construction. So I, I kind of understood how uh, during a, a year between um, undergraduate and graduate school, I, I truly went into SciArc as a painter. Uh, wanting to be a better painter. I thought that if anything, architecture could provide me some academic background. So if I wanted to move into the world of uh, academia, that would I would have a strong master's degree. Um, I thought it being sort of a broad tool that would allow me to engage in a lot of different avenues. And that actually happens quite a bit at SciArc. A lot of, uh, I'd say 30%, 40% of the people that graduated around the time that I did, and, and even still don't go into architecture. They go into various aspects of media, graphics, um, uh, you know, um, product design. There's lots of avenues that are available to you studying at a place like SciArc. SciArc is not the, I wouldn't call it the strongest technical school. Uh, the avenues are available if that's what you want to engage in. But they're far more about uh, the philosophical and environmental and, again, more sublime aspects of architecture that are necessary to, to, to be successful. and, and Man, it was so great. I, I, I loved college. I loved SciArc. SciArc was one of those places where I, uh, I just basically got fully invested in, into trying to understand architecture from the historical aspect to the contextual aspect to current architects, where it was going, all the relationships necessary to be successful. 
just was, I ate it up. Um, I remember our first year, my partner and I, we met our first day of graduate school. We're very similar in, in kind of our, our approach. We got an apartment with essentially one room. We put our beds next to each other and we basically lived at school, came home and literally as we would fall into our beds, we would talk architecture to fall asleep only to wake up, you know, three hours later to get back into it again for that first year. It's pretty intense. Any architecture student knows that first year is, I mean, it's just insane the amount of effort you have to put forth to be, to be, uh, to be part of the process. And I, I just loved it. So funny. I, you saying this and, and talking about your love, I was just having a, a discussion with my wife and we are getting into deep waters of, of past girlfriends and relationships in college. And it's like, holy cow, what's, you know, this, we're happily married and it all went fine. But I had to explain to her, like these other girls, you know, it, it, whatever you do on the weekend, I just went back to architecture. I just went back to the studio. Like, yeah. like yeah. they're like, Oh, wasn't it weird if you met your friends later, if you did something like, no, no, I just, went to architecture. I just, there was no meet your friends later. There was yeah. you know, at least in that first year, maybe year and a half, there is no other life that you live. Yeah. It is. And, and if you're in a place that is supportive, like Sire is unbelievably encompassing and supportive in your growth. It's magical. You know, yeah. it's, it's rare that you find that. I mean, um, I talked to other students who, who went to Harvard or other colleagues that went to Harvard or Ivy league schools and they're incredibly competitive. Um, and Sire was not competitive. It was incredibly supportive. I mean, to the point that as a first year graduate student, you were expected to help the senior graduates or the thesis students prepare their work, which again, new learning process. What did they create? How invested can you become? Building models for someone else. You realize the support that is part of, of making architecture successful. And if there's one complaint I have in the field, it's that as architects, we don't support each other enough. Um, there's a lot of conversations we can have, but actual physical support, like here's some work or here's how I built this building, or here's my way of putting something together. That, that doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, once you get out into the practice of architecture, for whatever reason, the business world is very competitive. I, I don't, I don't prefer not to fall into that realm. I have a few friends that are architects and in any way that I can assist with knowledge that I have or contacts that I have, I, I give it to them. Because there's there's enough work. There's the built environment is there's more than enough work for architects. Uh, that by SciArc is a brilliant idea. Uh, a lot of times in different colleges, in my own colleges, they'll try to do mentor program like a, a freshman with a senior. Where did you go by the way? Uh, North Dakota State. Okay. Yep. Um, and it never really worked out, or at least it didn't work out for me. We never paid attention to it. But if part of your freshman or second year class was to go to a fifth year. And your studio is sitting with them, helping them do whatever. Whole, I mean, yeah, I mean, it would almost be great if it was like a second and a third year or fourth year. It depends on the years of college because sometimes you have five years, sometimes you have six years. But so that they're there for another year, so that you know them for another year at, rather than them just graduating. Anyways, it, um, man, it seems like a really good idea. So I, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I was really, I mean, I, all all aspects of it. Even when you got there as a first year, your first week of school was building your own desks. And obviously there are people who've never held a, a drill in their life and or, or went into the wood shop and had to make, you know, cut the table legs and all that. So there was just this incredible joint environment of creation um, that was super supportive. And I, I've carried that out uh, into the practice field uh, uh, from, from school. Definitely Syrac was one of those places that, that you know, um, nurtured that type of relationship. 
Yeah. What were the early days of relativity architecture? Man, relatively, I'm going to start again. Lance is not (laughs) going to cut this out. He does all the editing. But uh, if he does, we'll start off fresh. (laughs) What What were the founding days, the first days, months, weeks of relativity architects like? What was the day to day? What were you doing? How are you? Uh, how is the team surviving? I'm going to take you back a little bit. Uh, my partner and I, as I said, met the first day of graduate school. We went through SciArc together, and while we were at SciArc, we actually started a firm called the Sullivan Bell Design Consortium, uh, where again we would bring in other architects, designers, fabricators to work with us to create work, and we. Uh, actually were building buildings and making sizable improvements to buildings um, by our third year of graduate school, second and a half, third year of graduate school. We had a a burgeoning business. Our thesis was actually the presentation of 40 projects that we had completed. So we actually um, worked together for a total of six years uh, doing everything from furniture to ground up to additions to actually becoming quite well known in the Hollywood uh, and West Hollywood nightclub industry. Uh, we probably built uh, four or five, some more maybe, uh, nightclubs uh, and comedy clubs in and around Hollywood in the uh, uh, early 90s um, or late 90s all the way up. Oh, no, sorry, 90s into the early 2000s, excuse me. And then after about six years, uh, we had some personal stuff go on, and so we went our separate ways. Uh, we went our separate ways for, I want to say, about six years uh, seven years. We, he went into high-end uh, residential architecture, Mama Radzinger. He worked for a number of firms. I carried on my own firm, uh, but I also took an artist in residence position in Israel. But ultimately, I came back and, uh, and uh, our, our first big project was designing and creating Siren Studios on Sunset Boulevard. And that was kind of a bellwether when, when uh, the client base that's out there realizes you can do a $5 million plus project, commercial project, a lot of doors open. And at the time, even though he was assisting me in my own firm that created uh, the Siren Studios, um, he was the, the architect of record. We did the work together. And then basically I said to him, look, I know you're not happy in your, uh, uh, your working for other firms. Let's, let's try a partnership again, but let's do it real. Instead of design build, let's focus on just doing architecture and let's, you know, let's work in this, like, you have more knowledge now of how a real firm works. Bring that knowledge to, to bear. I'll continue to bring in clients, and let's start. Uh, so after we finished Siren Studios, we actually moved to a house on their campus. So we were surrounded by this sort of media environment, which is production-based, which is there's speed, there's energy, there's deadlines. And that's kind of where we started in this little craftsman house that we redid on the Siren Studios back lot. And uh, that was the first days of Relativity Architects. And one of my good friends I played basketball with for about 20 years uh, was a CFO for a major uh, affordable housing firm uh, company. They, they designed and, and did affordable housing. And they, he started to test us out to give us projects. And at the same time, we partnered with an old firm that was retiring. And we took on their projects, Hatch Colaswano. And those two together started to create this affordable housing environment that we were capable of doing, along with my, all my hospitality contracts, um, and then the burgeoning studio market. And so those three elements became the pillars of our commercial firm, hospitality, uh, commercial architecture, uh, doing studios and creative offices for media companies, as well as affordable housing. 
uh, initially we had a four person firm. And then, you know, as a firm, again, I, I've never worked for anybody. Um, my, my, I started with my partner in, at, at Cyrac and carried all the way through. He went to work for people and came back in and was able to bring the grasp of how firms were structured. And we started to try and create a firm that was built on the design consortium concept where it was familial. Um, we supported each other and we brought in outside artists and outside architects to, to collaborate with. Uh, and then as we grew from four people to seven people, we had to move out of that little house that we were working in into an office. And then we grew from seven to 15 to 20. And then that office grew to be too small. So we eventually moved into our office now where we went from 30 to, to close to 50, 50 employees, all again, building on affordable housing, hospitality, and, uh, and motion picture studios. There's a lot of things that go on uh, as well as are in those typologies, but that's sort of how, how we grew. Uh, I have to say our most important hire happened early on, uh, a woman named Jenna Nguyen, who is now an associate principal to the firm and our studio director. My partner and I are, are both extroverts. Um, he's got an engineering background. I've got an art background, but um, we, we both collaborate and argue and we're very intense and we get into our work. And Jenna brings a sense of calm and direction uh, and, and sort of a, a supportive, creative environment that grounds us and allowed us to grow at a, a rapid but, but controllable pace. That, that's the biggest thing in a firm is, is growth, um, a growth of the firm, not outpacing the work. Uh, we don't have a lot of turnover, and I'm very proud of that in the office. That's awesome. Um, do you have... What percentage of, would you say, your projects are repeat clients? Oh, wow. Most. Um, I would say that uh, once we get a client, if they're going to build again, uh, they'll come back to us. Um, all of our affordable housing clients are repeat clients. Um, all of our studio projects are repeat clients. Uh, yeah, I would say 75%. Um, although, you know, again, uh, that's a great way to say this is once we get the client for the first time, they become a repeat client. So, you know, it, it, it kind of sticks at around 75%. We get 25% new clients, but they really like our work and invariably will come back. Uh, I had one client I did his, uh, we did his, um, uh, he, he makes uh, software for music. Uh, it's called Output. Uh, we did a beautiful office for him. Um, sure enough, call me back maybe six months later saying, I'm looking at buying a house. Can you come and take a look at it with me and my wife to talk about? And we don't do a lot of residential, but for, again, for repeat clients and special clients, we'll look at residential. So I would say 75%, um, uh, but it's consistent. That's awesome. Um, this is a, a two-part question. Could you describe one of uh, your projects that had the best process that you thought <laughs> and then maybe one, and you don't have to name it, that had maybe a bad process or a process you learned from or a process that you didn't like that you changed. Because I kind of want to contrast what in your mind makes a good process or a bad process when, when doing a project. Right. That's a great question. Um, so the, the process of architecture is very similar throughout. The client comes in with a, with a concept or a project. Uh, they, they give us the parameters of what they'd like to do, and we work within those parameters, the government parameters, the, as we said, the, the, um, the zoning and code parameters to create what they want. 
where it starts to sometimes have problems is budget um, or uh, client micromanagement. Um, um, perhaps they watch a lot of television or they're just the type of, of person that micromanages and it becomes a, a, bit of a, a bit of an issue. The best process was probably not the easiest job, which is interesting, but um, the best process was recently uh, completed a, a project called the V Hotel. It's a boutique hotel in Venice. Um, that one is really close to my heart. I grew up in Venice, uh, Venice Beach. It's, it's my hometown. So to be able to do a boutique hotel in Venice Beach is, is something pretty spectacular. And the client um, gave us a lot of, of room to create uh, both the conceptual design um, uh, of, of how sort of what, what appealed as Venice and my personal input. Uh, he valued that in the process. And so being able to bring the local artists that I grew up with as children uh, who are now, you know, painters, photographers, uh, being able to bring in charitable companies and have, um, uh, we have these uh, skateboards painted by kids that you can take as an amenity. And then when they take them, the company, the nonprofit gets, gets some money to be able to give kids, um, uh, get essentially grades for skating. So it's, I was just able to integrate an enormous amount of myself, the Venice, uh, um, the Venice sort of uh, environment into this project and the client allowed me that process. Um, and that was wonderful that being able to put Venice into a building and, and in a careful manner where it's not overdone was, was pretty spectacular to this day. I still go on the reviews, the Expedia reviews and every single one are saying just such in a well-appointed room. I feel like I'm in a small apartment in Venice, which was the goal. Um, obviously all the supporting characters around it. It was just an amazing environment. And I have to give props to the client. And we had major budget issues. And the client decided to build it on and build it himself. So there were problems in the creation of this hotel, but he stuck with it all the way through. He stuck with the vision. And what resulted is is probably the best hotel in Venice Beach. I mean, I, I've stayed at many of them or had friends, and there's not really a question. It is it is the best hotel in Venice Beach uh, by far. Um, a, a poor process, um, I was creating uh, uh, an environment in uh, Hollywood uh, for a recording studio. It was an existing recording studio. Two women had bought it. Uh, they wanted to update it. It had a wonderful history of, of amazing bands in the 70s and early 80s that had performed there, but it was really run down. Uh, and so I was able to go to the city and, and through the way I work and, and create actually a live entertainment venue with an audience plus separate recording studios and an office, but they didn't understand that. Uh, they didn't understand what I was bringing to them. And they also didn't understand the, the, uh, the technical aspects of what, what it took to create. Uh, and they basically every problem that arose, I got blamed and it was very difficult. For instance, we went into demo demo and we demoed the existing recording studio walls and there were clothing stuffed in the walls as insulation, right? Not legal, problematic. But the minute we demoed the walls, what I heard back was, you've destroyed the sound of the space. And I was like, but that's, you're creating a new space and that sound wasn't really a real thing and it was also a fire hazard and they just didn't understand how, how the method of going from an existing condition to a new condition was going to have problems and that I was there to help them solve the problems. And so every time a problem came up, clients started to hold me accountable to the point that I eventually, for the first and only time in my entire career, 
was actually let go by the client. And it was very frustrating because I had done a lot for them to create that space and they just didn't, didn't understand how, how to get there. So yeah, that would be one of the first processes. It's typically okay. client related. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 um, it is funny. It's true. Uh, the, I mean, the, the blame game, yeah. what I used to hate and I don't get it much more, but from contractors, uh, have you ever heard this term? We have a fire. Have you heard no. that? No. What like is that? A text or email. We have a fire. It, maybe it's just a Colorado thing. And maybe it, it was, maybe I don't like it because like in the army, we'd have like fire wake ups at, you know, 3am and just craziness. And maybe it's, you know, fire is a term, like what is the emergency? And a lot of times it was, Oh, what information you're looking for is on sheet a five. You just couldn't find it or, you know, whatever, or let me call the mechanical engineer and give you a let solution. Let me sketch this out for you. No problem. Let me resolve that, resolve this detail for you in some way. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what I'm getting to is because I've also seen this in, in, the construction side, sometimes in the owner side, it, but a lot of times you don't see it from architects. And the problem is that some people don't understand that the job is to solve problems. Yep. So you're getting paid to solve problems. So when a problem happens, that's just part of the job. Not that you don't do your due diligence, not that you don't try to mitigate <laughs> them all, but some people feel like those problems are the end of the world and they make it a big deal or they make it a blame game or they make it a target thing. And it goes back to that culture. And maybe what you're talking about is a culture of sharing, right? Um, and it yeah. might go to how contracts are, are set up just because the nature of, Hey, get the lowest bid, you know? And if, if you get the lowest bid, what did they exclude? And if they excluded absolutely everything, um, to the point of like, you know, it, it can get frustrating when you're putting in a beam and there's non, you know, uh, non-shrink grout in there. And they're like, oh, we don't put that in. Right. Like, right. all right, I asked you to put a beam in <laughs> and connect right. it to the concrete. <laughs> How specific do you want me to get here? Yeah, um, we, we, I, I'm not gonna, I'll, I'm not gonna disagree. You know, some of that um, I've learned. And again, it's, it's a time thing. And, and if you were to, Look, I had visions of being a star architect graduating at the SciArc. I thought, okay, I'm just going to hit this ground running. I'm going to, because I had already completed projects. We're going to explode. And maybe that would have happened if I hadn't taken that little sort of break in the middle. But the truth is, there's a lot I didn't know about how to deal with clients. Um, I will say that to other architects out there, I'm sure they know this, transparency is the best, is the best method. Just being open and clear about, about what kind of challenges uh, possibly could come, whether they're bad or good. Just try not to hide things. Uh, you know, that, that becomes problematic. SciArc also gave this amazing, and, and my initial start in the career of design build, gave the initial, gave an incredible understanding of craft. Uh, being able to discuss details with contractors is enormous. If you don't understand how it's put together and you rely entirely upon them, you better hope that you've picked a good contractor. Because the ones that may not understand them or may want to take advantage of that fact can be massively problematic. I enjoy the detailing aspect and I enjoy figuring out those problems. And I try and make it clear early on to the contractor, look, these drawings are not the end result of uh, you're going to run into field conditions or situations where I may not have resolved something. Either come to me with a solution and I'll talk to you about it or come to me with a question and I'll give you a solution. 
but let's work together to make this building successful. And, and that's something that has to be consistently enforced in any project is it's all of our goals to be successful in this project, to get it built on time and ideally on budget. There may be problems that cost the client more money. There may be issues that, that, uh, are, not, that are essentially unresolvable and we'll have to go sideways and figure out how to create something different that still works and addresses the problem. But if we're all in it together, we're gonna find our way. Not everybody always approaches it like that, but if you start the refrain of a project with, with that kind of discussion, I find that invariably it, it, uh, it grows to success. Um, I did not know that early on. And I would say early on in my career, there are many times where, yes, you're absolutely right. There's this sort of contractor blames you. I don't can't find this or contractor didn't build it right. And you have to go look, it's in the drawings. You didn't build it correctly. But I've learned now that there's lots of ways that these things can get resolved in the field, on paper, or, or with a client to, to make it successful. Again, transparency upfront is, is huge. Yeah. And, and setting the expectations from everyone, from someone just coming to work at your firm that literally is just outside of college, that, it is, that these things happen and this is part of the job and that's okay. Yeah. We have a wonderful uh, element at Relativity. Every Monday morning at nine, we have something called a group hug. Uh, it was a lot more fun in uh, pre-pandemic when we were all able to be in the same room. But basically, the whole firm comes together. Uh, my partner and I discuss new projects, whether they're conversations I might have had over a dinner napkin over the weekend or something that is actually formulating into a contract. Um, or, uh, and then after that, we go into milestones. Everyone gets to talk about what they've achieved in their projects. It can be as small as I figured out this detail that I was struggling with to, hey, the DWP just came and pulled our transformer so we can demo, um, or we just submitted, and then we move into lessons learned. That one's hysterical because a lot of times on Monday morning, no one really wants to talk about architecture, but we pull it out, and invariably, there's a wonderful sharing that, that starts to happen, and I think that a lot of the newer um, employees that we have, the younger ones, really get something out of it. Uh, they, they get this sort of grasp that everyone's working together on the same types of things. And there are solutions out there that we've probably already figured out. So no one has to face this like, oh my God, I'm all by myself and I have to figure something out. They can go to myself, my partner, a PM, perhaps another even designer in the office and have a discussion on how to resolve a, a condition. Um, and what that's engendered is this amazing self-motivation out of our younger staff and actually all the way up. Uh, how can we start to figure this out? Who can we talk to to give us some direction and then come back and show it to them and say, is this what we're talking about? And no one here is, is um, professionally competitive in our office. And that, that's a real important factor to, again, this all kind of leads back to that beginning element of how my partner and I first started is this nurturing supportive environment to create architecture. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, how is your firm structured? Um, is it teams? How are the roles structured? Great question. You know, again, I never worked for anybody. So up until about 15, everyone did everything. Like we didn't even, I think at 15 is when we actually started assigning project managers. Up until that time, my partner and I and, and Jenna, our studio director, would sort of manage projects. But Everybody from the youngest designer to people that were more experienced would take some role or some part of the project. But as we grew, our projects got bigger and, and our, our hierarchy had to be in place because, you know, a, a 10 or 20 or $30 million project can't happen with everybody doing everything. We used to call ourselves very amoeba-like. We were nimble. 
right? So we could pull five people to work on this and then three could go work on that and then two could work on that. But once we got to larger projects, we realized that wasn't sustainable. Uh, people were getting exhausted. People didn't have ownership, which is important. Um, so we started to establish a hierarchy of project managers, uh, project captains slash architects that are in control of des the design sets and what we call designers. Um, and then we obviously, we have marketing, we have graphics, we have a bunch of different supports. That being said, we make people get out of their comfort zone. Designers do not just design. Uh, often we'll give them a small project and say, hey, this is for you to, to take start to finish. And we're here to help, good luck. Um, we want, and my partner and I often say this, our goal is to train architects. We want people to feel comfortable that they understand how to make a project start to finish, even in relationships to the clients, the city, all aspects, so that in five to eight years, if they decide they want to go it alone, they'll have the tools to do so. I truly believe that. Um, we've had a few people leave our firm and start their own firms. We give them projects when they're not appropriate for our company. Um, we really try and create these, these sort of growth, we try and create a growth environment where everybody in the office is learning something about architecture every time they step into a project. Awesome. Um, we are hierarchical. We had to be. We're corporate to that degree. And, and that's about the most corporate we are. The rest of the stuff, we are as familial as we can be. We have, you know, events. I think we're trying to go to the Salk Institute, red buses and go to the Salk Institute. We have happy hours where we sit around and drink and talk about other things. We have parties. We try and create an environment. And I will say the beautiful thing that's happened out of that is the majority of people that work here are friends with all the other people that work here. We'll go to someone's party and there'll be six or seven or 10 or 15 employees there hanging out, drinking beers, talking about everything but architecture and architecture. Yeah, It's, it's pretty exciting to know that the environment we're creating is successful in that way. Sounds awesome. Um, it, it, it's enlightening too, because I think there is that difference. Who knows if the number is 15 or 12 people or, you know, around there where, Hey, everyone can kind of be working in more organic light, but then after that, it, it needs to be something different. So it makes a lot of sense. There's also interestingly enough, um, which was surprising to us. There's a lot of drama when nobody has an assigned role, uh, essentially a structuralist firm gossip, um, starts to happen. Drama starts to happen because there's this inherent, how am I going to proceed in this environment? And I think just as humans, we, we start to get competitive. And um, unfortunately, in this day and age, competitive is as much about undercutting as it is about individual success. And that is something that, that actually hit us at around 15. And we had a, when we shifted to a hierarchy, and I even said it when I talked with Scott and Jenna, when we talked about, okay, we're going to move to this hierarchical arrangement. I go, we're going to lose half our firm. And sure enough, um, that was the one time in our firm where we had uh, some pretty high turnover. We, we had about maybe six people decide to move on, not acrimoniously, just move on into their own worlds and their own environments. Um, you know, we cautioned them. We said, look, the environment out there, uh, a lot of firms hire uh, for production and then we'll let you go if production dips. Uh, we structure our salaries and we structure our firm in such a way that, that even if we dipped in production, obviously a, a giant slide is going to be different, but we do our best not to have to let anybody go. Um, and we've been pretty successful. And since that time, two of those six came back because <laughs> the environment out there is just not as great as it is in relativity. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we haven't had that many people leave, so we haven't had that uh, experience. That but we've, we've had uh, clients 
leave for whatever reason and then come back and be like, oh, you guys actually were good. <laughs> yeah, it happens. I mean, you know, we, we've had that as well. We had a client who felt that we couldn't do a big project and we warned them and, you know, they, they our fee was the same as this big firm. So they, and we said, look, the big firm's going to kill you. And they said, oh, we're fine. You know, they know they have experience. And I think a $400,000 fee turned into a $2.5 million fee because that big firm just nickeled and dined them to death. And that's just not how we are. We are a client-facing firm. We try and do our best under the budget given. Obviously, additional services happen, but we do our best to really deliver what we say we're going to do for the fee that we agreed to. That's awesome. Uh, as we wrap up, any any other concepts you want to touch? Anything you want to let our listeners know? Anything you want to get out there? Well, I will say, um, I, I would like to, you know, I talked a lot about the culture and you know, as, as your questions and the projects. But at the root of it is, uh, is a distinct belief in the approach to architecture. Um, and that for us is contextual. Um, if you look at Relativity's projects, you'll probably know that none of them are consistent in their form or the way that they're created or the sort of design approach. Like with Gary, you've got the floating forms or you know, curvilinear forms, or you can look at Frank Israel and the way he put buildings together. That is not how we believe architecture should be created. There's a great book by uh, an author, Michael Benedict, who's a, it's called a, For an Architecture of Reality. And it really proposes that we look at where we're creating and what we're creating and who we're creating it for and let that generate the form of the, of the work. Um, and how, obviously, programmatically, you have to achieve everything, but the form of the work and the aesthetic of the work comes out of those facets. And that really starts to create an incredible investigation into lots of different areas um, in, in, in architecture. And for us, that was massively important being, it is massively important. You know, we were doing a project in downtown LA and I sent everyone out there to go walk around the block and to walk, you know, within a half mile of that area and really get an understanding of how many cars, how loud it is, what the views are, who are the people that are on the street? What are the other buildings like in the area? And then we'll even go on a larger sort of downtown LA urban fabric. And I think that probably generates from uh, Michael Rotundi, uh, Roto Architects. He approached projects in that way. And there's a strong school of Los Angeles that had that contextual approach to architecture and in achieving the formal aspects. And for us, that, that's really important. Um, it's not necessarily about some amazing idea that's conceived. It's about pulling in all these elements, letting them you know, mature together, ferment as it were, and then create something out of those elements. And, you know, consistently, we're not the most kind of crazy formalism. Uh, sometimes I wish we were, I wish we pushed those boundaries, but I realized that what we do create actually fits into the fabric. And as our, my partner and I talk, we want a sense of timelessness to our project. We don't want to be dated like Frank Israel. We won't want to be a 90s architect or 2000s architect. We want our work to be consistent at least for the next hundred years. Um, and, and that's something I think we've achieved. So our base philosophy is really important to that aspect. Well, I, I've seen some of your work, so I agree that it accomplishes that. I encourage Thank any you. of our listeners to go look at it. So I'll let you have the last word, tell people where to go if they're interested in your firm or what you do. And I can't thank you enough for being on Inside the Firm. Of course, uh, relativityarchitects.com. Uh, our, our real name is the Studio of Relativity. So I believe it's www.studioofrelativity.com. Uh, that's the best place to check us. We have an amazing Instagram account, at Relativity Architects, uh, showing a lot of our current work. Uh, and sometimes we even hand it over to our employees. 
so you can kind of see what they feel about the architecture rather than just something from our PR or internal marketing. Thanks again. I appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Tima. 